Well, this morning we're, of course, continuing in the somewhat different look at Luke's gospel that we've been undertaking, focusing on how Luke presents Jesus as the Word made flesh. We're in the middle of chapter 4. I think probably next week we'll finish up chapter 4, and I expect in the coming weeks we'll move through these chapters more quickly because I want to just touch on those high points in each chapter where Luke shows us the Word in action and does so in a very powerful way. So this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his return to his hometown of Nazareth and what happens there. So let me read this for us, reminding us again that this is the very word of the living God. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he teach us from it this morning. As we come before it, let me pray for us once again. Let's join our hearts together. Our Father in heaven, we come before your word now and ask that you would bless this time that we spend before it. Indeed, we ask that you would speak to us now and fulfill the promise that you have made that your word goes out and does not return to you void, but instead accomplishes all that you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. 
For us, we ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see and to open our ears to hear the things that you have for us this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we may walk according to what it teaches us. Father, all of this, once again, we ask in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. When we, when we begin this series, I started in John 1, and we saw how John 1.1 1, 1 is just this great poetic description of the Word. That's a contrast to Luke, who rather than describing things, shows us the Word, shows us the Word in action, the story of the Word made flesh. And so you have this contrast in John In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on, and so on. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light is coming into the world, yet the world did not know Him. But even more than that, says John, verse 11, He came to His own, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive him. Powerful, poetic words. What John says in one verse, Luke is going to show us in this passage this morning. The same truth. He came unto his own. His own did not receive him. In fact, they tried to throw him over a cliff. In John... The main opposition to Jesus seems to be more or less from the religious authorities. In the early parts of Luke, the main opposition that Jesus has in the early part of his ministry is more doubt, lack of faith. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Is this really the Christ? By chapter 7, that specific question is asked, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And the beauty of this, the opening chapters of this gospel, Luke has been showing us all along. This is the Word. This is the Word made flesh come to tabernacle among us. So here again in this passage, beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke shows us what happened there in Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth. Luke puts it very simply. It's where he was brought up. It's where he grew up. His ministry at this point, early, is focused on going to the synagogues and teaching and preaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the word, and implied in verse 23, doing miracles as well. So he comes to Nazareth. He comes home, as was his custom, Luke tells us. He goes on the Sabbath into the synagogue, And he was invited, as was customary for a respected rabbi, he was invited to come and read the word and expound upon it. What I want to do this morning is look at three ideas that kind of build on one another. First, the proclamation of the word. What is it that Jesus says? The proclamation of the word that he gives. Secondly, the reaction to him and to his proclamation. And then the third thing, seeing the Word, as we've discussed before, the Word comes and does three things. It comes with power. 
comes to reveal and it comes to compel a response. And we'll see all that at play here in this passage this morning. Well, first, the proclamation. Jesus has been baptized by John in the Jordan, uh, Jordan River. He's gone out to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by Satan. And it says that he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. His teaching and his miracles got people's attention. And the word spread, says Luke, through the surrounding country. And he concludes in verse 15 that he was glorified by all. In other words, let's not take that word for too much at this point. He was popular. He was getting attention. Look at this guy and look what he can do. The word spreads. Here's a, here's a new rabbi. Here's a new teacher. Here's a new, maybe he's the Messiah. A lot of excitement. A lot of hits on his Instagram page. So even before he got to his hometown of Nazareth, there was a buzz about Jesus. And, and they're thinking, this is our guy. He's one of us. He's already a recognized teacher, a recognized rabbi. So it was expected that when he came into the synagogue that he would be asked to teach, and so he was. He stands up to do so, to read the scroll given to him, the scroll of Isaiah, found the place that he wanted and read. And that's no easy task. If you've ever seen a scroll of Isaiah, it's big. And back in the day of Jesus, there were no paragraphs. There were no chapter numbers or verse numbers. It was all letters, one after the other after the other. You had to be pretty well educated to scroll through that whole thing and find the part you wanted. Jesus is an educated man. It's in Hebrew, and he reads it translating into Aramaic as he reads it, because that's what the people spoke. So you cannot be some backwoods hick. Never think of Jesus in that light. An educated man. He knew the scriptures and he knew how to teach upon them. And of course he read from what we heard this morning, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 there in verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4. Gave back the scroll, sat down to teach, as was the custom. Too bad we've lost that custom, I think. I wouldn't mind sitting and began his teaching, says Luke. He began to say to them, it says in verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's what he began to say. Goes on to say that they were amazed at his words and marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. He must have spoke for more after that. But Luke is giving us a summary of Jesus' sermon, his exposition that day. The theme of the sermon, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was fulfilled? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus. Well, that should be no surprise given what we've already seen in Luke. The Spirit came upon him at his baptism. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And as we've already seen in verse 14, he returned in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. 
But more than that, the Spirit has anointed him. Well, that's a clue to every Jewish ear in the synagogue. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And he was appointed for a reason. To preach, to teach, to proclaim, to declare a word to them from the Lord their God. Well, what is that proclamation? Well, it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Good news, the gospel, to those who are poor. Those who are materially poor, to be sure, but also, as Matthew tells us, those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah makes reference to this in his prophecy. Those who are discouraged and troubled, down, we would call it, or depressed. Good news to them. And as we've already seen in Luke, that's a message of repentance and forgiveness of sin. The message that John came preaching and preparing the way for. That message of forgiveness upon repentance that's passed down to us to this day. What we saw a few weeks ago from Psalm 32. David's great recognition. I confessed my sin and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's good news. That's tremendous news. Repent and you will be forgiven. Believe and you will have eternal life. What does that mean practically? Well, for one thing, it means liberty to those who are captive. No longer captive to sin and death. This should be an echo, again, in Jewish ears of, of the Exodus. Captives in bondage in the land of Egypt, now set free but more than just set free from foreign enemies, no longer captive to the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, repeated, over and over and over again, sacrifices of the Old Testament system. Not one of those sacrifices able to deal with their sin permanently. They have to keep coming back and back and back over and over again. And we know Jesus came for a purpose. To die is at once for all atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. You're no longer captive. You're no longer captive. You're free. And what does he say? The one the Son sets free <laughs> is free indeed. That's freedom. What else? Recovering of sight to the blind no longer walking in darkness, no longer lacking understanding of God and His Word, but rather now you can see and you can see clearly. Can no one understand the Word? And this is something that we see all the time. People will say, before I became a Christian, I would read the Bible and I just didn't get it. It made no sense to me. But upon conversion, now now it makes perfect sense. I agree with it. Before I used to fight against it. Now I agree with it. Light has come. Understanding has come. Darkness is gone. Jesus makes this possible. That's what he's saying to the crowd there in in Nazareth. I bring light. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed. This theme of liberty, again, repeated. Not only set free, therefore, from sin and death, But now, in a broader sense, your enemies no longer have power over you. Those who would oppress you do not have power over you. That might seem strange in a world full of 
martyrs and persecution and trials and troubles. But it's worth remembering for us here at home, but also for those who are persecuted more terribly than us around the world. They can imprison us. They can torture us. They can make life difficult for us. They can even kill us. But what Jesus is saying, none of these oppressions has any power over you because of me, because of who I am, because of what I've done and what I'm going to do. And so what do the the apostles say? Count it all joy. (laughs) Rejoice when these trials come upon you. You've been counted worthy to suffer like Christ. Oppressors have power? No. Not if for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not if today if I die I am with him in paradise. So we've talked about the pressure on our faith here around us in our society and the growing pressure. It's there. Don't want to minimize it. Don't want to ignore it. It's increasing. We just had a couple fined and prohibited from speaking freely about what happened to them in Oregon. How do you react to that? How do you react to those stories here and around the world? Does it make you angry? Does it get you upset? Are you worried about it? Planning for the future? Scared about the things that might happen? Those would all be natural and understandable. But what Jesus says is, I set you free from that. Therefore, rejoice. That's a different attitude. That's, a, that's an attitude that only comes in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. When oppression comes and we rejoice, that's being set free from oppression. And finally, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, an echo in Jewish ears of Jubilee, which was a year of favor promised by God every seven years and every 50 years. God would show his favor to Israel during these times. Captives were to be released, that theme again. Debts were to be forgiven. Land restored to its original owners. And God would provide for them an extra measure of harvest, not to last them through the Jubilee year, but to last them for three years. A year year without, a year where they had to plant, and a year where they had to wait for the harvest to come in. Wow, that's incredible. Jesus is saying to the people in that synagogue, all of your longings, all of your hopes, everything that you wanted and were expecting from Messiah, everything is fulfilled in me today, now, right here in your hearing but it's so much more than you thought it was. I am the Messiah. I did come to set you free. I am the light that leads you to the light. I am the one through whom you can receive God's eternal favor. Eternal favor. True favor. True grace. Again, through repentance and faith. Repent and I will take your sin. In return, you get my perfect righteous obedience. Believe in me. Believe and don't work on your own efforts. 
by grace and through faith, you will have the Lord's favor. Whether Isaiah says that the righteous ones are clothed in righteousness, or John says it in Revelation, or we see it in the happy exchange that Paul describes in Galatians, those who turn to Christ have an eternal year, (laughs) an unending year of his favor. That's what Jesus came to proclaim. How much of that did he say that day there in Nazareth? Well, I don't know because Luke doesn't tell us, but it's certainly, I think, the implication of what Jesus began to say in verse 21. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Powerful. Powerful words from Jesus to the crowd in the synagogue. Well, that was his proclamation. How did they react? Not well. Well, they spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words, says Luke in verse 22. So far, so good. But yet, very quickly, in that same verse, they ask the doubting question. Is not this Joseph's son? Isn't, Isn't this that carpenter's kid? You know, rabbis come from rabbi families, (laughs) not from lowly blue-collar workers or the equivalent 2,000 years ago. Who is this rabbi who's a carpenter's son and not a rabbi's son? They've already forgotten his baptism in chapter 3, which they would have heard about as the word spread about Jesus, where God spoke from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. They'd forgotten that. They looked at him as as only a a mere carpenter's son. So, Jesus, great teaching and all, but who are you? We're not really sure if you're the one. Show it to us. Prove it to us. Jesus knows what's in their hearts. He knows the source of their question. And so he says, surely you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. The proverb. How did a doctor prove he was a good doctor in the ancient world? All his his treatments he used on himself. If they work on me, they'll work on you. Trust me. That was the nature of medicine back in the day. What they're challenging Jesus with is, do what you did in Capernaum. Do that here. Do some miracles. Show us a sign. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. Give us evidence. Same thing that they've continued to ask for. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews want a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But we know Christ in him crucified. And Jesus refuses to accommodate them. Surely it is true in verse 24 that a prophet is not acceptable in his own hometown. A little side note, we, we kind of know that, don't we, as we share the gospel with family and friends. Those that we're closest to are often the hardest to communicate with. Because they look at us and they go, I know you. Whether it's a, a father or a son or a spouse or a sibling, whatever it might be. They know us too well. Prove to me you're different before I'll believe what you say. And with Jesus, we know him. He's just a carpenter's son. That's all. 
Jesus refuses to give them a sign, and then he gives them a warning in verses 25 to 27 that it's a powerful, powerful warning. He refers to Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Elijah came at a time when the whole nation was being turned over to Baal worship. The king had embraced it. His evil wife Jezebel had embraced it. They were going to marry their daughter to the son of Judah and infiltrate Judah with Baal worship. The tide was turning, and it was not turning well. God sent Elijah, whose very name declares his job. My God is Yahweh. And he defeats the prophets of Baal and does great works. Elisha comes as his successor. Now that they have finally rejected Baal, they aren't quite yet looking to God with faith, trusting him. So Elisha comes along and his name says what his ministry is. My God saves. You don't need protection from foreign kings. Yahweh saves us. And what does he say, Jesus, about these two prophets at this crucial turning point in their nation's history? Well, they were both rejected for much of their ministry. Elijah only had a remnant of 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So God sent Elijah to a foreign widow, protected and kept her nourished during the famine. Not to any of the widows in Israel, to the one over there in Sidon, a foreigner. Elisha comes along. Powerful miracles that Elisha worked. And Jesus said there were many lepers in Israel, but only one that was healed. And he was a Syrian, a foreign official, Naaman. Jesus is giving a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to him on a very personal, powerful scale. It's one thing for his hometown to disbelieve and doubt, but what's going to happen to Jesus is the whole nation is going to reject him and clamor for his crucifixion on the cross. But he has, like Elijah, a remnant of his own. But beyond that, like Elijah and Elisha, there are people outside Israel, Gentiles, that he's going to call himself. He will say to the crowds later, I have sheep who are not of this fold. And if you have repented and believed in Jesus, you're one of those people. You're one of those people Jesus was talking about, even in that synagogue in Nazareth. Your faith is a tangible fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic words. And now the audience gets exactly what Jesus is saying, and they don't like it. He's telling them that they're as bad as those stiff-necked ancestors of their past. The ones that they don't like, the ones that they criticize, the ones that they think they're better than. But he's telling them they're just as bad as those faithless rebels of Elijah's and Elisha's time. But they're insulted. And instead of recognizing their sin and repenting of it, which is what they should do, (laughs) They rose up, drove him out of the synagogue, out of the town, to the brow of the hill, to the edge of a cliff, and attempted to throw him off that cliff. We don't know how, but verse 30 just tells us he passed through them 
<clears throat> and went away. So here's Jesus in this passage going from being glorified by all to being driven to the edge of a cliff to be thrown over. That's a quick descent in popularity. How could something like this happen? Why would it happen? And that's where we get to the three characteristics of the word when it comes. Those people in that synagogue hated what Jesus said to them. Why did they hate it so much? Well, again, three things happen when the word comes. It comes in power. It always comes to reveal. And it always comes compelling a response. Those three things. Here, too, the word comes in power, just not like the crowd wanted or expected. They wanted signs, they wanted miracles, they wanted some demonstration. Instead, Jesus gives them the power of truth that pierces into their very souls. He shows them that truth, and he painfully applies that truth to them. So here's God in the flesh, the Word made flesh, living and dwelling among them, showing them the way from darkness to light, to life in Him, powerful words and instead they doubt they question him they demand a sign and when that doubt is pointed out how they're just as faithless as Israel of old they don't repent they get angry the word still does that to people today doesn't it that truth comes into people's lives you're sinners God punishes sinners and you're in danger of being punished And so often people reject that. They get angry. They get upset. They rebel against that. That is the power of the word, getting into people's hearts and minds, convicting them, but they hate it. They hate it. I'm not a sinner. I'm basically a good person. We're all basically good people. Why can't we just get along? So when you share the truth of God's word and people get angry, don't be surprised. (laughs) They just don't want to accept that powerful truth from Jesus, that he's the only way to the Father. And quite frankly, they don't want to live the way the Bible commands all of us to live. So as Paul says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and oftentimes very great anger. Again, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes, because it will, (laughs) when you faithfully... Share God's word with those around you, even if you do it with great love and kindness, compassion and winsomeness. Do not be surprised when people reject the powerful word. Remember that parable of the feast. There's a feast prepared. It's ready. Just come. Well, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got oxen. I just got married. There's a song a bunch of nuns sang back in the 60s. I cannot come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. I have married a wife. I have bought me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Pray hold me excused. I cannot come. How tragic is that? And yet so typical. The word comes powerfully. It reveals truth. Here it revealed their lack of faith and the true unrighteousness of a people who thought they were very righteous. 
obeyers of the law, at least outwardly, hoping for a Messiah like they should, at least the Messiah they had created in their own minds. The word revealed to them the truth. How they weren't that obedient. How their hopes for Messiah were misplaced. This happens for us as well. Oftentimes we get our own expectations ahead of or outside of God's word. We decide what fulfillment of it is going to look like. We see this time and time again. Every time we begin to think we're somebody special, every time a church begins to think it's somebody special, I have not failed to see this once. It comes crashing down in some way, shape, or form. And when we do that, (laughs) what does Peter say? Discipline begins with the house of God. God is not going to let us do that. God's word also reminds us of our struggle for, with sin, our continuing struggle. We know what we should do, and we don't do it. We know what we shouldn't do, and we do it anyway, and that frustrates us. That revelation of truth is, is wonderful for those who believe because it motivates us to repentance and faith, the continual act and life of repentance. So God's word always comes along, reveals truth, and corrects us, sometimes painfully as God disciplines us to bring us into conformity with his word. So if you're uncomfortable, maybe God's trying to bring you back to where you need to be. Poor in spirit, difficult times, maybe there's some correcting work going on. You may need a revelation from God's word to correct your path. Sometimes that's a hard thing to do, but so wonderful when it happens. So the word comes with power, it comes to reveal, and it also compels a response. When that revelation comes to us, there's always only two options. Either accept it, (laughs) repent, submit to it, believe and obey, or reject it and rebel. It's either belief or disbelief. It's either doubt or faith. You've heard me say before, I'm not a big fan of debates. Because debates imply somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. And I don't think that's what the word is all about. The word comes by itself powerfully. The word comes by itself and reveals. Speak the word. Share the word. You don't have to win arguments. Just sharing the word compels a response. You don't even have to win. You just have to be faithful. And that takes a big burden off. It's not my job to convince anybody. It's not my job to win argument. It's my job to be faithful, sharing the word. Let the word work because it will. And it always compels a response. Of course, in that synagogue, the response was not good. But in the hearts and minds of so many throughout Jesus' ministry, the response was powerful and wonderful. The disciples, the crowds, the women who followed him, the centurion at the cross, <clears throat> so many others. That's true for us as well. When you share God's word, non-believers are going to do one of two things. They're going to either repent and believe, and if they do, praise God, or their hearts are going to harden in rebellion and in doubt. Non-believers need the word. Christians need it powerfully as well. To be reminded of who we are and whose 
we are by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel keeps us humble and keeps us humble servants, as it should and as we should, reminding us that we are here to serve others and to love others (coughs) as Christ has commanded us to do in imitation of him. God's word corrects us. It refines and improves our doctrine and it teaches us how to live day by day. Luke is showing us the word here powerfully. A faithful shepherd who does not let his sheep stray. So when you stray, expect to be corrected and respond accordingly. The Spirit is working through the word, whether it's your own study of it, listening to it on tapes or on the radio, hearing teaching on it, sitting under the preaching of the word. So do not forget, do not ever forget, the word is powerful. The word always reveals truth, and it always compels a response from everyone who is encountered by it. And it is powerful for you as well. It reveals truth to us and compels us as believers to respond. We are not to be stiff-necked and doubting like the Jews in Nazareth. Instead, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Repent, believe, learn and obey, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Present yourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord your God. This is reasonable. <laughs> love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as servants of the Lord, the Word made flesh, proclaim the good news of God's favor in Jesus Christ, His Son, so that His name will truly be glorified and magnified by all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for, in particular, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, the power of his coming, what it reveals to us about ourselves, about the world around us, about what we should think, how we should believe, how we should behave, how we should live. We thank you that that word does not go out and just dissipate into nothingness. That always compels a response. And we know and believe that it accomplishes the very things that you intend it to accomplish. It's successful where you send it to be successful. May that continue to be true in our own lives, in our own ministry, in our own witness to those around us. Make us bold in sharing our faith. Also make us humble as we remember what the Word reveals to us about ourselves and our need to be humble before you and humble before others. Make us servants, ready and willing to do those things that you have called us to do, to use the talents, the individual and specific talents that you've given to each of us uh, to the best of our ability, shared together in the body of Christ. Again, may we be a fragrant aroma of Christ to all of those around us. We ask it in his name. Amen.